So God's grace and his peace are yours on this Lenten Wednesday night. So when I was in college, in my senior year at Wheaton, I was a night watchman. And this was a job that was given to people who were involved with federal work study. So it was part of my financial aid package. And so my freshman year, I worked in the library and did data entry, and that was about as mind-numbing as you think it is. And then one year, I didn't do federal work study, partly because it was my own fault, but some misunderstanding with financial aid, which of course never happens with college, um, and that sort of thing. But once I got to my senior year, I decided to do night watch, because I'm a bit of a night owl. Uh, my fellow teachers and people who work with me know this, that I'm the sort of guy that'll go to bed at like 1 in the morning and wake up at 7 and get here at 7.30. That's just kind of my MO. Even at 37 years old, I still do that. And so I was programmed that way in college, too. So what I did is I volunteered to be the night watchman once a week, and it was usually Saturday night. So I would be on duty from 10 p.m. until about 5.30 or 6 in the morning. I'd go sleep for three hours and then go to church. I went to Wheaton Bible Church, and it was a walk, and that's what woke me up, is I had to walk there. It didn't take a car, so it woke me up in the morning and go for a walk. And my future wife, Jennifer, she was my girlfriend at the time. She and a couple of my buddies would actually go with me, and we'd go to church. And they kept me accountable going, even when I was on three hours of sleep. And the duties were pretty interesting. I, was, I would sit behind a desk, and once all the mag doors engaged, I had to check the people that were coming into the building, and then also do the rounds. So I went through all the guys' floors, and then I had to go to the girls' floor, and that was like one of the only times a male could go on the girls' floor was to do the night watch. So I had to knock and make sure the floor was clear and make sure there was no weird things going on and walk through all the different floors. And so the first couple weeks on the job, it was kind of different and new, and it was kind of exciting. By the time I got to week four or so, I was getting pretty tired by about 4.30 and 5.30. And sometimes when the person who was the morning person that would do their thing was late or they forgot, and so I was there even longer, I was getting pretty tired. And I longed to see some daylight, especially in the winter months. It got a pretty, pretty hard. And there was some responsibility there. And I longed, I longed for daytime, which is not normal for me. But on night watch, I really, really wanted to do that. This psalm makes an illusion like that. It talks about longing for God as a night watchman longs for the dawn. It's said in verse 4, excuse me, not verse 4, it's in verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. And it's that Hebrew idiom of emphasis, right? They repeat themselves, so there's some emphasis on this. And back then, that was an even bigger deal. You didn't have any electronics. You didn't have artificial lighting. And so that was a little scary to be on night watch. You had wild animals you had to deal with. You might have invading armies. You had bands of robbers there. You couldn't see anything. You might have a torch later on in history. You might have an oil lamp or something like that. But you're not going to see very far in front of you. So to be on night duty, you talk about longing for the day. It's much more than I ever did. And that's how much the person in this psalm longs for God more than the night watchman in this culture longs for the morning. And I love that image, and I really related to that in my own humble, small college brain (laughs) to experience what that was like, to wait for the dawn and to long for God at an even greater level. And so it's a really great image of hope. And this psalm, Psalm 130, just a little backstory for you, is one of the most frequently recited psalms in the history of the church. It's been prayed in both the Eastern and the Western churches for at least 1,500 years regularly. Now, of course, it goes back to the Jews, and the church used it before then. But for about 1,500 years plus, it's been in a regular cycle of worship weekly, and especially in the cathedrals or in the monasteries throughout Europe and throughout the East and the Middle East. Uh, This is also done often during funerals. 
In fact, in some of our old Lutheran liturgies, uh, during funerals, this psalm is often read as a cry for aid and a cry for mercy for God, for those who have departed, but also for ourselves as we mourn the loss of someone. It's also for those who are sick, who are desperately needing God's favor and needing God's mercy. It's hard actually not to think of this psalm about my own grandfather, who recently just passed away a couple of days ago. 12.30 in the morning, Monday morning, I found that out. My dad texted me, and my dad was actually in a really good place because my father was somebody who knew Christ. My father was somebody who I remember on his knees when I was a little kid, and I had to go on my knees too before he went to bed. So every night we'd end it. So I have some really good faith memories for my grandfather. And because he was really declining these last couple of years, it was an act of mercy. It may seem odd, but my dad almost sounded joyful in that conversation with him on Monday because he fell asleep, basically. He just he fell asleep permanently. And my dad, that was one of the things my dad had been praying for, that act of mercy. This Psalm 130, when I read this for this Wednesday, I couldn't help but think of that because it's so connected to the end of life um, in our church traditions. The Eastern Church also prays this psalm in the evening, which is also highly appropriate because of this night watch theme. Uh, and so if you're waiting for the Lord like that, it makes sense. It's, you're, you're getting ready for bed, you pray this psalm. And in the monasteries and places around, places like Greece or in Egypt, they, would actually, they actually do this psalm today right before they retire for the evening. And I think that's, that's great, great and appropriate. In a sense, and I've mentioned this before, I think, when I've taught Christ in the Psalms before, Every time a Christian goes to bed, it's like a mini death and resurrection. Because Paul says things like that, like those who, are, who have fallen asleep. It's a euphemism, 1 Corinthians 15 and other places, those who have fallen asleep. So in the same way, when we go to sleep and confess psalms like this, we are preaching the gospel, preaching our death and resurrection every time we go to bed. Nothing is boring in the Christian walk when you think theologically. It's not just dry practice. It's not just academic. It's actually the way we live our daily lives. And so this idea that this, this psalm is said um, is partly because of also its character, right? It's very penitential. It's very honest about our broken condition in front of God. And I love Christina picked this background, this C background. It's highly appropriate because it starts out with this verse, out of the depths. And this literally means the depths of the sea. So if you study the oceans, there are certain areas and your body has to adjust because you get crushed, right? The further down you go and there are certain places, unless you're in a submarine or some sort of protective sphere or something, that you will be crushed by the sheer weight of the oceans. And the further down you, and then when you surface, you got to surface slowly. Otherwise, you get the bends or the oxygen content in your blood isn't right. Lots of things change because of the ocean. So the image that you get here out of the depths is somebody who is being crushed by the sheer weight of the water, right? Or somebody who's being overwhelmed. You see waves all around you. Uh, somebody who's been shipwrecked and all they see are just uh, these huge waves that are going to bury them. That's the image we have in Psalm 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. So you're being sunk down in the middle of the ocean. Now the words that we use are words like depression. Or perhaps you're being down. Or you have anxiety. And we can use all these different terms. And those are some real terms that we use for diagnosing people that have real legitimate illnesses. But also just people who have had bad things happen to them in life. Or they've just simply had a bad day. This psalm goes further than that. As human beings, without the mercy and grace of God, we are being crushed and overwhelmed by the crushing weight of our sins in the world around us. 
In fact, I love verse 2 because it sounds like a rhetorical question, but it's important to remind ourselves of this. In verse 2, it says that if God wrote down every way we have sinned and violated his laws in creation, how would that look? Who could stand is a rhetorical question. So if there was a book, for example, the book of Aaron Hayes, my biography, my spiritual biography, and it was completely honest, no forgiveness, Every single thought I've ever had, every single dream I've ever had, every misdeed, everything I've forgotten, every act of ignorance, everything I've done on purpose, how would that book look? I'm glad I can't read it. Because there's probably some stuff in there that I've forgotten about that I should be ashamed of, which is why I love in our confession, when we, uh, there's some earlier confessions where we say some of the things that I know of, right? The thoughts and words of deeds of which I am ashamed. But some are only known to you. I'm confessing them all, God, because I sin in ignorance also. And so if I actually read that book, it would probably shock me, and I would be ashamed. I would not be able to stand. And by your chuckles, I know you all relate to that. It's all too true for every single one of us. But because God doesn't keep a record of our wrongs due to the work of Christ, we are therefore rightfully awed by him, or as this psalm says, we greatly fear him. That's reverential awe. You stand in awe. It doesn't mean you think he's going to fry you immediately, but the fact that that mighty, holy, righteous God actually doesn't look at those sins, that should keep us in awe. It's a humble and proper response to what God has done for us. So if we're feeling like we're being crushed in like this psalm, both by our own doing and by what has been done to us. I want to be honest about that, too. In our sinful and broken condition, we sometimes forget that it's not only ourselves, but things are done to us also. There's a brokenness that we share corporately in humanity, that we also do things to each other. We ignore each other. We beat each other up. We put each other down. There's all these things that happen. It's a both individual and corporate thing. It's not just yourself. In fact, I'm reading a book right now. I was talking to Pastor Dinger about this, and it's called The, Tri- the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a pretty interesting title. And, it, and in particular, it talks about something called expressive individualism. What, it's, what, what they mean by that in the book is this idea that you have to discover who you are inside yourself. So I need to be my authentic you. Be yourself. Find the true you. Find your own truth. Find your own expression. And that's how you construct your identity. And then we wonder why everybody's confused and depressed. But that's, how it's, that's what's happening, is we have constructed our own identities. There's not that sense of community now. And if we are honest with ourselves, if we are ourselves, it leads us to this point. God, who can stand? This is who I am, and I could not stand in your presence. That's an authentic me. The authentic me is the fact that I should not be my authentic me. And instead, I should have my identity and my being in Christ. That's how this changes. And so Christ says in the gospel reading today, and I love that, and I think it's highly appropriate for this psalm, that we are to come to him if we are weary and burdened. And that really does sound like the first two verses of the psalm. And Christ says that we will find rest because of it. In fact, you could also say that Christ has gone to the depths for us and experienced the full crushing weight and abandonment that we see in the early verses of this psalm. All of humanity's crushing weight in this case. Because he has done this, we can now wait on him, like this psalm says, and because he has done it, we can see God's steadfast love and plentiful redemption, as we see at the end of this psalm. There's different translations on that. Copious redemption was another psalm that is, it's almost like God's overflowing with redeeming qualities, that he can save you with copious and redeeming. I love that though, plentiful. It almost sounds like a harvest. 
You get that harvest metaphor with something that's, that's done plentiful. The last verse says that God will redeem all of Israel, which includes us, by the way, as one people of God from all iniquities. In other words, the person who cannot stand in the presence of God on their own list of merits are forgiven solely by the work of God, and it's a complete work. I'd like to point this out. It does not say some of your iniquities. It doesn't say most of your iniquities. It actually says all iniquities at the end of this psalm, all sins, all crooked behavior. So the image of this abundant grace that comes from God and mercy, it's a great theme in Scripture. And so I couldn't help but think about some passages in the Apostle Paul that reflect how wonderful this mercy is given our condition. For example, we have the words in Ephesians 2, where God says God who is, uh, he speaks of God who is rich in mercy. And he says of Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And somewhat later, he says that God will show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's in Ephesians 2, and that's verse 7. So it's highly appropriate then that we look and say this psalm in the evening on our last Wednesday in Lent, and also as we conclude the Red Letter Challenge. This merciful redemption is that of the evening sacrifice. That salvific raising of Christ's hands in prayer on the cross when he paid the purchase of the world. And this is going to be a quote from somebody named Patrick Henry Reardon. He has a book called Christ in the Psalms. It's one of the sources I've been using as we've been preparing for these psalms. He says this. Uh, where are we? Oh, here we go. Sorry, forgive me. It was in the evening sacrifice offered while the world was plunged in a darkness that started at noon that the Father delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. This is the mercy and the plentiful redemption in which, at the end of the day, we place all of our hope. To God be the glory. Amen.